I'll just give you a tiny, tiny bit of, of, of uh, preparation for this series. Again, to, to acknowledge some, some parallelism going on here, some mirroring going on here between the book of Acts and the book of Luke. It's actually a really interesting thing to do in your own time to read the book of Luke and the book of Acts side by side, chapter by chapter. They, they, they mean, Luke means to sort of mirror ideas in one sense, in the life and ministry of Jesus, and then in the life and ministry of his people. That the books are meant to not just parallel each other, but mirror each other, as if to say the things that were true of the life of Jesus are also true in our life, are supposed to be true in the acts of the apostles, the works of his sent ones. And so he, he, he connects. It's important for Luke to connect this work to the previous work, to say, in my former book, and then to actually say uh, uh, that it's still written to the same person, this, this Theophilus, whether that's one person in particular or just sort of a general category of people, lovers of God. That's the, that's the sort of the etymology of the word, there, the name, Theophilus. That's to say that those that love God. But it's a Greek name. So it's meant to almost probably uh, uh, mean this, these, these Gentiles who are open to the gospel or Gentiles who have received the gospel. In other words, it's written to us. It's written to us. Even after all of these generations that have passed, still Luke and Acts mean to, 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 to not just tell us this, this sort of ancient story of Jesus, the one that we, we look to or the one that we trust for salvation, but to actually see in the stories of Jesus our own lives. Actually, actually to, to look at the remarkable, miraculous work of Jesus and life of Jesus and to say, that, that's supposed to be my life too. You say, well, that's crazy, Brian. I mean, the things Jesus did, the way Jesus was connected to God, I could not be. And yet, that is exactly what Acts means to teach us. That we are given access to the same Spirit. The same miraculous power. It just can't be turned off? Is that... Did we turn it off? Turn it up. Doesn't turn off. Good one. All right. These are conversations we have all the time where she's upset and I can't do it. Uh, this is every day. This is common. Good. Um, you tried. That's what matters. And so when we read these stories, our stories are there. Our community struggles and overcoming them are meant to be like a mirror. I'm not sure what was funny about that, but I'm glad, I'm glad someone was tickled by it. Look at that. And some, somehow these two stories, the story of Jesus and the story of his people, the story of Jesus his life, death, and resurrection, and the story of our life, death, and resurrection is bridged by this uh, um, accounting of the ascension, the ascension of Jesus. Somehow this is meant to be a bridge between these two stories, these two worlds. The exit and then the entrance. The exit of the second person of the Trinity 
and the entrance of the third. Acts 1 is the nexus between the gospel and the Acts of the Apostles. It is the nexus between the life of Jesus and your life. And it is, at some very basic and important level, about the transfer from the primary relationship, the primary leadership relationship that they have, the disciples have, with Jesus, the incarnate Son, to the Holy Spirit. This is, this is a transfer of power that's taking place. A transfer of leadership from Jesus, the incarnate Son, to the, Holy, the poured out Holy Spirit, who is the one that Jesus would, would describe as the one who is by your side, the one who walks shoulder to shoulder with you. And it's all predicated, the whole thing is predicated on a surprise. It starts with a surprise. And Jesus would say, uh, you, you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And they can have no idea what that means. You understand, when he says that to them, you, you, you probably have some sort of sense of that, maybe, uh, but they, they would have had no sense of what he was talking about. It's just crazy talk. And if they, if they you've, you've been in these situations where someone says something you don't really understand, but you sort of act like you do, you know, <laughs> act smart or pretend like you've been there. That's, that's what they're doing right now. When, he, when he's eating with them, he said, you know what, you, 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 you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. John baptizes you with water but I'm going to baptize you the Holy Spirit. They're like, yeah, mm, 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 mm. And they're looking at each other like, do you know what that means? I don't know. Don't say anything. They can't have any idea what that means. No such phenomenon existed in their, in their experience or their theology. And yet he makes that, that promise. And so they do ask questions. So does this mean the restoration of Israel? Does this mean the kingdom will come in this moment? And effectively, Jesus' response is this. It's a surprise. That's his response. I can't tell you it's a surprise. How do you feel about surprises? We, we, have, we have a thing we say to each other. We, we, we believe that we're... we're Broke, human beings are broken into two categories the, the people that like surprises and people that don't it's, it will even ask each other do, are you someone that likes surprises I'm just curious who, who in here would say yeah I, I like surprises I'm into surprises okay nice to meet you and then who would say nope not interested surprises are stupid and uh, <laughs> keep, them, keep them to yourself it's pretty, that's pretty, pretty, evenly, pretty evenly balanced there it is a funny question that we ask each other, though, because we think some of us like surprises and some of us don't. And by the way, I'm sorry to do this to you, those of you that raised your hand and said you don't like surprises, but I actually think you're, something's unhealthy about you <laughs> if you don't like surprises. And I, I want to admit I'm the same. I don't like surprises either. I don't like surprises either, so at least I'm with you. Uh, but healthy, loved, and creative people like surprises. Okay, don't, don't get self-righteous on us, okay? Don't let it go to your head, guys. Um, I mean, let, let's be candid. When those of us that don't like surprises, we don't like surprises because we're afraid. 
Because deep, deep down, we are afraid of not being in control. We're afraid of not knowing. We need to know. We want to know. We want to control. And, and of course, our relationship with control is also a matter of fear. And in this new relationship that Jesus is offering, promising, predicting that we will have, instead of a relationship with his physical presence, but a relationship with his spirit, which will be poured out on us, it begins with, and it means to forever be a matter of surprises. A constant relationship. The life lived with the Holy Spirit is a life of surprise. It's what it is. And I'm sorry to say, I'm sad to say, that those of us that don't like surprises probably will have trouble liking the Holy Spirit. He said, no, that was really low, Brian. That really went to new, new painful levels. But here's the thing. There, there is a kind of Christian that doesn't like the Holy Spirit. You know that, right? They, they don't mean anything necessarily against the Holy Spirit. They just, they don't like what the Holy Spirit does. They like the Holy Spirit as sort of an idea, concept. Let's make sure the Trinity is good and all in place. We're not trying to lose one third of the Godhead. But if, if what it is that the Holy Spirit does in the world, it's just too unpredictable for us. And it is. It's too easily manipulated. And it is. And we're uncomfortable with it precisely because the Holy Spirit is free and does what he wants when he wants. Uh, Jesus once compared this new birth that they were meant to have, this new, 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 new salvation that they were meant to have uh, with being born of the Spirit. And he actually compared, just as he does here, he, just, he compared it's like you were born by water, but you can also be born by the Spirit. And now he's saying you can be baptized in water, but you also can be baptized in the Spirit. And in that same accounting, it's in the, the Gospel of John, he, he compares the Spirit to wind. To wind. The uncontrollable presence and absence of the wind. And of course, we know that in Acts 2, when this promise is fulfilled, when the Spirit does finally come, it comes like a mighty wind. And wind is not something that you control. Wind is not something that you hold on to. And, and even this morning as we were worshiping, I just heard God say, the, 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 the doors of our homes, the doors of our hearts have to remain open if the wind is to get in. I mean, you can close the door to your heart. You can close the door to the home, the rooms in the home of your heart from that wind. And you can see it, you can watch it pass you by, and you can watch it interact with the world around you, including others. But unless your doors are open, that same wind will not come in. It blows in and out of our lives. It is always a surprise. I want to propose this morning that a relationship with the Holy Spirit, and this is part of what we'll discover in the study of Acts, a relationship with the Holy Spirit is unpredictable. It is unpredictable. And exactly when we start to imagine that we can predict 
or we can control, or we can manipulate the Holy Spirit, you can be sure, and, you, and I'm, I'm giving you this as a matter of orthodoxy, you can be sure that you are not actually talking about the Holy Spirit anymore. When it is something that you can just do X, Y, and Z, and just pray this prayer, and just operate this way, and just do this spiritual checklist, and you'll get the Holy Spirit, you're not talking about the third person of the Trinity anymore. Whatever you're talking about, may be real, it may be false, but it isn't God. Because God is not someone that we conjure. He is not someone to be controlled by us. He will not be someone who can be predicted. He is not nature. He is not physics. He is not mathematics or an algorithm. He created those things, but he is not subject to those things. So you don't get to decide exactly how it is that God will always show up in this way. And if you just do these things, then He will come. The first thing you learn about a relationship with the Holy Spirit is that it is a relationship with surprise. And surprise is a gift to our monotonous, painful human lives. It is the gift of waiting and not knowing. What will happen next? And it's one of the best gifts that God gives us, actually. And it reminds us that He is a person. He is a person. Anybody here like to be manipulated or expected to always obligated to do exactly the same thing the same way every time? Anybody like that? Anybody think, that's what makes me thrive as a human being? Monotony. Anybody? I don't think so. I don't think so. We know that part of what makes us human, alive, is that we are capable of surprising people. It's, it's somehow related to what it means to have a qualitatively good life. What does life even, a life that is good and not bad, it means somehow to be be creative and, and, and spontaneous and, and, and unexpected and ha- to have surprises in it. This is exactly, I think, the abundant life that Jesus was promising his, his friends. And when he said, you know, you're going to have life and you're going to have life to the fullest because I'm going to send my spirit and you'll never know what's going to happen next. And the control freaks are like, this is not life to the fullest. This is horrible. <laughs> No, it's really life to the fullest. You're wrong, he's right. One of my favorite music producers of all time is a guy called Brian Eno, who was kind of, uh, if you've ever heard of ambient music, he's sort of the father of ambient music. Uh, He he famously, uh, he was was a part of a band for a while, a bad band called Roxy Music, but he he went on to, to, to produce People like David Byrne, The Talking Heads, David Bowie, uh, U2, Coldplay, James Blake, people like that. He, he always just brought this sort of like mesmerizing kind of music. And the, one of the great skills that Eno had, and you would bring Eno in. So great bands or artists would only bring Eno in when they hit a wall, when they thought we just need, we need a burst of creativity. And he, Eno came up with this... Um, uh, this technique, which he called the oblique strategies. And what it was, was it was a deck of cards, black cards, about the size of a deck of playing cards. 
And then it was just a, it was just a stack of, of ideas that when you hit a wall creatively and you didn't know what to do next, you were just like, we just can't get out of this thing. You were supposed to draw a card randomly from the oblique strategies. Supposed to draw a card. And it might just say something like, uh, use an old idea. Or state the problem in words as clearly as possible. Or try faking it. That was, that was an oblique strategy. Just try faking it. Or ask your body. This is just what strange artistic people do. Ask your body. What's the answer? Oblique strategies. I keep thinking about the Holy Spirit and his relationship to strategy. And I think it's like that a little bit. Oblique. And I don't know if you, you, some of you will remember this, some of you won't, but years ago in the very beginning of the development of the first sort of wave of artificial intelligence, the work towards artificial intelligence, IBM came up with a computer called Deep Blue, and it was meant to play chess. It was, it was sort of uh, try, trying to see if we could, could create a computer that could beat the best chess players, the greatest chess masters in the world at chess. And so this great showdown happened, I think, in the 90s between Gary Kasparov, the the, who at the time would have been the, the best chess player in the world, Russian grandmaster, and, and to play Deep Blue. And interestingly enough, every time, I mean, of course, Deep Blue could do millions of calculations per second. It could, it could calculate moves way beyond what Kasparov could. But interestingly enough, Kasparov consistently beat Deep Blue until, this is so interesting, one uh, in one match that, that uh, Kasparov was playing against this computer, the computer had uh, a glitch, like a break in its code or something, and it made a mistake. But the mistake just looked like a random move or a random choice. And that random choice was so, it, it was beyond what, what Kasparov thought a computer would do. And so he interpreted this mistake, this glitch, essentially, as higher thinking. He thought, oh my gosh, what, why did this computer do that move? It makes no sense. It was a surprise. And because it was a surprise to him, he started to believe in his own head that suddenly Deep Blue was capable of higher level thinking, higher level calculation. And you know that Kasparov never beat Deep Blue again. He never was able to win again because he thought for one moment, he got spooked. And he thought, okay, this thing is it's capable of creativity. It's capable of surprising me, even though it actually wasn't. And creativity is powerful. Surprise is part of what makes life wondrous. And a relationship with the Holy Spirit just like their relationship with Jesus was, full of the unexpected. They just woke up every day, and they, all they knew to do was to follow him. And whatever he had for them that day, they did not know. They could not know. But they entrusted their lives, the fullness of their lives, every step they would take in the course of that day to this one who they knew was greater than them. And so they walked with him. And now this relationship with the Holy Spirit stands to take the place of that relationship. It's what makes, frankly, life worth living. 
when something happens we don't expect, it really gives us delight. It gives us delight. I can remember one time we were painting as a family, painting a room or something, and um, my kids are notorious for like it's time to work and they have the wrong clothes on. I don't know if like they're in their pajamas or they have like their dress clothes on. It's like, guys, or we're outside doing construction, they have no shoes on. This is constant. I'm constantly having them have to change. And so Skylar was the little one was like coming into paint, but he had good clothes on. And I, I remember saying to him, I said to him, Skylar, uh, if you're gonna if you're gonna paint, you've got to get paint clothes on, or else you got to paint naked, one or the other. <laughs> and so he said, "Okay, Dad." So he left the room, and you know he came back ready to paint, buck naked. <laughs> and I was I was delighted. This creative prerogative is what makes us unique. The other day, Monica told uh, Luke and Simeon, your dad wants you. Your dad wants you. And this, this, these are my sons. Simeon, the 14-year-old, says, okay, what does father want? That he literally said, what does father want? <laughs> and Luke, the 17-year-old, said, and I quote, what does Brian want? full of surprises. They still surprise me because they're growing up into free people. And this is life. This is life with the Holy Spirit. It's meant to be wonderful. It's meant to be full of surprises. He's there and then he isn't there. You pray for healing and it happens and then, then the next time it doesn't. And you pray that, that, the, that the gathering would go well and you would have just the right words to say and it would be almost miraculous, and it is, and then the next time it isn't. And you, can't, you can get mad at God if you want, but that's just how it is, guys. That's just the deal. He comes and goes, and all we really can do with the Holy Spirit is invite him. Let's invite him. And sometimes he comes to our parties, and sometimes he doesn't. I'm not sure why. Maybe you need to look at yourself. I don't know. Maybe you're not living right. I don't know. I can't answer the question. Maybe it is just that dance of absence and presence so that we love him more, so that we appreciate him, so that we don't think that he's some genie in a bottle that we rub just the right way to get him every time to do what we want him to do. Because if that were to happen, that would be the greatest tragedy of all. We would lose our sense of God, and we just would be conjurers, magicians. It's not going to happen, not with God's power. That's not how it works. You know, 11 years ago, almost to the day, 11 years ago, I stood in front of a group just like this in the very, very first crucible for the underground. And that day, we chose to begin a study in the book of Luke. And I gave the first talk in the first book series at Crucible, and it was Luke 1. And I can remember talking actually about Luke my son Luke's first day of school. And it was, it was, he was entering school and now he's a senior. So this, this is what's happened. He's gone through the full life of a, of, a, of a school person, child. What do you say? I don't know what's the right, school human. Uh, 
I was going to say schoolboy, but I thought he would be offended by that, so school human. Um, <laughs> now he's a senior. He's come a long way. We have come a long way in those 11 years, almost 12 years. You know, we have, we've, we've met in eight places for crucible in 11 years. You know that? We've had crucibles at eight, eight homes out of this month. We've had four hubs in that time. My beard had no gray in it when we started. But we set out to try something to see if it would work. We were not sure that it would this whole underground experiment. It was just that. That's not just, that's not just um, you know, hyperbole or, or you know, words. It was an experiment. We had faith, um, but, but I wasn't sure. But I thought it was worth a try. This different way of being, organizing and being the church. And we said we would do certain things and we have done certain things. On that day, I have the notes from that day, and so I looked at them again. And it was kind of emotional, actually, to read what I said that day. Let me just give you a couple of pieces. Promises we made, things we believed. I said this, we have ended up here because we believe in the kind of church that God imagines. Not the kind we build, because we are flawed, but we will keep our hearts and our eyes on the one who creates and the one who makes all things new. I said that more than being one church, we want to be innovators of church. We want to be church planters. And I actually said our DNA is to dismantle competitive motivations and affirm the smallest representations of church that we can find. And to say to every small worshiping missional community, you are the church. I said that morning that we want to create an umbrella where every individual feels the weight of the glory of the mission of God on their life. And asks the most important question a person can ask, who am I and what do you want me to do? I said, we will not be putting the cookies on the bottom shelf. I actually said that, that phrase. We will not be putting, I'm a little embarrassed by now, but I'm sure it sounded cool then. We will not be putting the cookies on the bottom shelf. We're going to resist the temptation to preach a message of personal wellness and betterment at the expense of the incalculably glorious gospel of Jesus and the evil that suffocates and staggers the world. What will we accomplish Simply put, I said, we, will, we, we want to plant microchurches and to create a place where everyone is a missionary. I said, we believe in people who are destined. And something about this text, something about this first chapter of Acts reminds me of destiny. It's like, it's like you're, you're waiting. You're supposed to believe there's a surprise coming, but you got to know that your life is much, much more than you think it is. 
That you're a part of something much greater than you can feel or experience in that moment right then. I said many of us have felt like strangers in traditional churches. We always felt like there should be more, like we wanted more to be asked of us, more to be expected of us, because we know in a place that words and even conscious thought do not reach, that we are people of destiny, that we are meant to be something greater, not in an egotistical way, but in a way that makes us part of something that changes the world. Human beings are made in the image of God, and there is a latent creativity in us that silently aches to be more. We yearn for significance, I said, because we were made for it. And you, you can be the judge of it yourself, but I think almost 12 years in, I think we have done those things. We have accomplished something which seemed to us very difficult and hard to imagine. I like Nelson Mandela who said, it always seems impossible until it's done. I remember saying that day that Luke was afraid on his first day of school. That was what I was talking about, was him going to school and me, me being outside of the elementary with him and him crying because he didn't want to go in. And I asked him, what are you afraid of? And he said, I'm afraid of being punched in the face. That was his... His root fear. I'm not sure what gave him the impression that school was the place where he got punched. That's what he's afraid of. And, and, and how times have changed, you know, because now I'm afraid he's going to punch someone in the face senior year. That's my fear. How things have changed. What he was afraid of, now he's excited. He, 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 he cannot get to adulthood fast enough. He's ready. He has changed. He has changed. And what he needs from me as his father, I'm still his father. I, I have to tell him that a lot. I'm still his father. But what that means is totally different now. Can you see that? what it meant to be his father on that first day of school and what it means to be his father now on the, on the brink of his total autonomy in adulthood is, is utterly different. I think of the complexity of just his life, of all the things that have happened in his life through, through these years of school in that period of time. It's, it's incredible. It, it boggles the mind. It spins the mind. And then I think about this community and what we've been through and what we've experienced and the people that have come and have gone and the things that we've seen and the things that we've done, the people whose lives have been touched. And I, it, it, it just, it's exponentially more complex and incredible. And in a very real sense, I have walked with you through that time. And, and this movement, this, this local expression has grown up. And this text, Acts 1, is really about a transition of leadership. I mean, why leave like this? Why, what, is it really necessary to float up into the air? Couldn't you just be like, guys, it's been nice. I'm out. 
and just walk away? I mean, why the, why the theater? Why the floating into the clouds? Why? That's extreme. Why the angelic visitation? It's, that's a lot. And that doesn't happen that often in the Bible, you understand? And it never happens to us. So, so an angelic visitation, actual physical angelic visitation, means something significant has happened. There's a marker being laid down each time angels have to show up and make an announcement. It's a big deal. It is a big deal. And this is a big deal, as if someone floating in the air wouldn't be big enough of a deal. Why? Why go to all this trouble? I think precisely the reason why it has to be so extraordinary, so miraculous, so theatrical, is because you can't, it's important for them not to think he's coming back tomorrow, not to think that he'll just be, he's just around the bend again, or I just saw him yesterday, he'll be back again, and and somehow hold them back from embracing the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. They've got to feel like he has gone. And he is not coming back. Do you understand that? They have got to feel like he doesn't live here anymore. And the only way that they could know that for sure is to watch him actually ascend into heaven to say, I don't think he's on earth anymore. That's, that's the important thing for them to, to say to each other, you understand. Why? Why? Why the ascension? Why is that so critical in the transfer of power here? Because they cannot believe that he is still on earth. And yet he cannot die. They can't bury him in the ground and say, well, remember when Jesus was here. They've got to go, well, remember when Jesus was here, but he's still alive somewhere. That's part of what's going on here. And it's this important transition that he doesn't want them to miss, a transfer of relational authority from Jesus to the Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit will be the one that they talk to, the one that they walk with, the one that they turn to now. And this is shocking for them emotionally, personally, spiritually. But it is, as he said, it would be better. This is incredible. He said, it's better for you. He would say this in John's gospel. It's better for you if I go away. Because if I go away, I will send the comforter to walk with you. It's better for you. And in that same sense, you have grown strong and wise, this movement, capable of leading this community without me. And it has been this slow unwinding for me of having a lot to do in relationship to our community and slowly seeing God call people in to take responsibilities, pieces of that authority. Incredible people, beautiful people, brilliant people. And to realize God has taken care of this community and he has put people in place. And I, 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 I've just had a front row seat to that, maybe even more than anyone, to watch the remarkable people that God has drawn into our community and into our family. And this is a strange and beautiful revelation, something I'm coming to terms with now both as a father and as a leader. To watch... People not need you anymore in the same way. And to marvel at it, to love it. Mostly I am thankful beyond words to have played some part in starting the underground. And now to play my part, equally important, in trusting its care and leadership to you. It isn't really right, actually, the deeper I think about it. 
it isn't really right, actually, for one human person to be at the center of anything that God does. It isn't right. And there will always be a displacing off of center. Whenever a person gets a little too big for their britches, a little too important, the work of God and the work of the Holy Spirit is always to empower others to displace that person slightly. Until, as I'm experiencing, you're displaced completely. And it's, a good, it's not just a good thing, it's, it's genius. It's beautiful. It's everything we ought to hope for as leaders. It's everything we hope for as parents. And so I find myself in a strange and wonderful place staring at the sky. Wondering what's next for me. And knowing, knowing that if I stay too long, I risk holding you back. And yet feeling more committed to you than I ever have, more connected than ever before. And this is sort of my final thought from this text, which is the, sort of the, the temptation or the caution of the ascension. The, 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 the urge, the temptation to bask in the miracle of it all instead of moving, moving forward into mission. To wait, to stand there looking at the sky and to wait for Jesus to return instead of putting our eyes back down to the earth where he has called us to serve. This, for me, that, that question about the sky and watching the ascension and keeping our eyes on the place of the ascension, even if it is the hunger for his return, that, that sort of skyward gaze gets corrected because it is, it is a gaze against mission. It pulls us away from the real life nitty gritty of mission. And that we will find out is exactly what the Holy Spirit is empowering them to do to put their eyes upon those in need, a world that is lost, suffering. And this crazy question, which requires an angelic visitation, unveils something vast, something essential being communicated. I mean, when when God sends angels to, to deliver a message, you better listen. It's an announcement. And I think it is the announcement of the coming of the kingdom of God, a new movement. They want to mention because to them, that's the miraculous thing that's just taken place, not the beginning of a movement. But it, it, in point of fact, that the more significant thing is the beginning of a movement. As some of you will have heard, no doubt, maybe not all of you, but some of you will have heard that Monica and I are feeling led by God to live for a time, at least one year, in Ireland. And there's lots of things, there's lots of reasons, I suppose, behind that. There's lots of things that we are meaning to do there. Um, you know, I want to, I want to serve our friends and our leaders there. I, I'm, I still, I'm still, you know, going to remain at least temporary, at least for now, the executive director of the underground. I'm not leaving the community or the mission or anything like that, but just to, to have a posting somewhere outside of Tampa. 
And, I, you know, I, there's things I want to do. There's things I mean to do. I want to serve our friends and our leaders there. I want to walk with the now nine nations in Western Europe who are asking for our input. I want to move the center for us again because we are becoming a national and even international network, a family of people that share a similar heart, and we have to figure that out. We are becoming like a family of movements, and, and to be frank with you, I want all of those cities to know that we are out there with them, that Tampa is not the center of the universe. It's kind of a cool thing that someone might actually think that, but... Uh, you know, and I and I and I, I want to keep learning. Um, I think we have we here have found a way to do church that is different, but we did it from scratch. This is important. So when people come to us, they say, "How do you do what you do?" We can with answers, but those answers have to do with distancing yourself from the traditional form of church. In other words, what we say is like, yeah, you could probably do something similar in your city or your context, but step one is have nothing to do with church people or church. And what's interesting about that is that we, we essentially, we have a proof of concept that has to do with starting from nothing or starting without an existing operating system. But what we don't know yet, if it's possible, is can you take the existing operating system and change it? And I'm interested in that. I'm interested to see if that's possible. I want to see if we can help existing churches transform themselves into places of missionary empowerment. I want to do that and more. There's lots of things that are in my heart to go and see and try. But honestly, friends, at the heart of it all is really just a command I'm feeling that has been given to me by my first love. Jesus is still Lord of my life. And as much as I love you and would give my life for you, for this work, this movement, He is my teacher. Redeemer. He is my best friend. And he is the one that has always had the right, the authority to tell me what to do and where to go. And so at a very simple, primal level, I'm just I've I've never not been his to send or deploy. And for the last Oh, I don't know, 12, 15 years, uh, this, this, this is what I was meant to be doing, supposed to be doing. And so I need to go back to the upper room now. I, I, I have to go to the place of prayer, the frontier of mission, the place where there is nothing yet. I feel that call. And you are my sky. You are the place that I saw Jesus ascend. You are the people who restored my hope in the New Testament, in real community, in integrity, 
in honesty and surrender and sacrifice, these things which I always believed ideally existed, but I see them in you, you see. I've seen them in you. You have, you have pushed away the night of my own cynicism. I have seen you do miracles and think it was no big deal. I've seen you struggle with death and division and sin and failure, with insecurity and with pride. I've seen you struggle with God and with each other, and yet you've stayed true to God and to each other. I've seen you wade into the deepest, darkest waters and yet not lose heart. I've seen you year after year after year give away our best people to a needy world. God does not seem to want us to be a mega church. He wants us to be some sort of conduit or river. I've seen you give your money and your homes and your hearts to the people God has called you to, and I will never not love you for that. You are the people, and this is the place that has breathed hope and laughter and love and faith into me. You are the people, and this is the place that has helped me put to death my own sin and selfishness, my own cynicism and self-righteousness. This is the place I saw Jesus rise. This is the place where I saw Jesus in the clouds of my dreams where I saw people really love the poor and do mission with no money, for no money, with no fame and for no fame. No accolades, just love. Just for him. And I might be forgiven if I just stood here a while and looked at the sky. Basking in the experience of it all. But I cannot. I will not. I look around and I see strong, wise, bright leaders who can lead this community without me. And I look again at the harvest, the unbelief, the need, the church in the world, which is in over its head and trying to fight a war with paper swords and half a heart's full of courage. And so as others of you in this room have heard God's call to come in and to steward this precious work, I now stand prepared to go where I'm sent. And there are people here now, and I see them. I see the authority resting on them to take care of this city on a hill, to see it grow and become something even greater. Its new day is dawning. And so I, am, I have become available to God, you see, because of them. Now, I don't want to draw too many parallels here. I, I don't think it's, it's a stretch to say I'm nothing like Jesus. I'm not Jesus. I'm not nothing like him, but I'm not Jesus. But I do look to Jesus for my ideas about leadership and growth and change. And I can see here something transcendent about leadership actually in this text. 
that Jesus understands that something that sometimes the physical absence of a leader can actually catalyze a great change. Physical departure, the physical absence of a leader can actually catalyze some kind of great change. And that absence, listen, that absence is not, if it is done in the right time, abandonment, but rather it is love. And the converse, to stay too long, to believe somehow that the community exists for you or your ego or whatever, can be a great hatred of the people. It's what we have always called empowerment, actually. It's just a continuation of empowerment. It is better for you, he said, if I go away. So I will send one who is better, the one who can be with you always. And there are two mountaintops. There is the mountaintop of commission, like Matthew, for example. He wants to end his gospel with that, with that, that moment on the mountain where he commissions, where Jesus commissions them. And they want to worship him there, but he says, no, you have to go. And then the promise that he makes, the last thing he says is, I'll be with you to the end of the age. If you do this, I'll be with you. And yet he must understand that he can't really be with them physically. He, isn't, he doesn't mean it that way. But Matthew almost doesn't want to give us the ascension, even though the ascension happens also on a mountain. That should also be included in the story, but he doesn't give us that second mountaintop experience. Luke wants to give that to us, and he gives it to us not at the end of Jesus' story, but at the beginning of ours. That actually, the ascension is not the end of Jesus' tale where he finally then goes into the sky. The ascension is the beginning of our story. It's the beginning of the empowerment of the priesthood of all believers. Because the departure of the physical incarnate Son of God means the delivery of the Spirit of God into every single one of His people. Is that Amber Alert? Is somebody going to be okay? Jesus wanted his friends to find new power to walk in the intimacy that he had experienced. So he leaves. He physically leaves. This is, uh, I don't know, next level leadership stuff. I'll invite up the worship team. So Jesus leaves the mission to them. And he leaves them everything they need to accomplish it. And he promises in that exchange something which he believes will be better for them. I keep thinking this week that change, this kind of change or transition, is a lot like jumping. It's a lot like jumping. Mission is a little bit like jumping. I have a friend who has a church planting training program that he actually called Jump School, which I think is kind of clever. Uh, but he means it, of course, like in the skydiving sense, you know, Jump School. You put your parachute on and you jump. But I, I think I mean it maybe in a more uh, pedestrian way, a more ordinary way, just jumping as in jumping in the air. When was the last time you just jumped in the air? I mean... Maybe it's been a while. I, I think there are certain things that you, you, it's difficult to do without a corresponding emotion. For example, it's difficult to be grumpy and skip, skipping. It's very hard. 
And I would just say the next time you're just in a bad mood, you can't seem to shake it, just go skip about. Just skip about for a while. The physicality of it. It's just hard. It's hard to be mad and skipping at the same time. I think it's like that. I think jumping might be something similar. I mean, literally, just jumping in the air. Jumping in the air is hard to do and, and not let yourself out a little bit. There's actually a famous portrait photographer, maybe the most famous portrait photographer of the 20th century, a guy called Philippe Hausmann, who, who I, I don't know if you've ever seen that, that sort of famous brooding picture of Albert Einstein that became a stamp. That's, that's Hausmann. Um, and he would, have, he would have photographed every person of note probably in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. He just was a, a, a very sought-after portrait photographer. And Hausman got this idea in his head. I think he was with the Ford family one time. And he just, he just had this belief that, that uh, you know, people gave their face for, for, for pictures, but it was never their true self. He believed actually that our faces were masks that we wear to hide our true self. And of course, as, as somebody interested in, in portraits, he was always looking to get around that somehow, to somehow see past the mask to the real person. And I think he was actually with Ethel Ford, the grandmother of the Ford family, sort of in maybe the late 40s, early 50s. And he had this idea, he just thought to himself, oh, if only I could get her a picture of her jumping. He thought, if I could just get a picture of her jumping, this grandmother. And so he asked her, he, he pulled her aside after a long photo shoot, an arduous photo shoot for the whole family, and he said, could I take a picture of you jumping? And she said, excuse me. I just want to get a picture of you jumping. She, she said, okay. So she took off her shoes and she took a jump up. And then uh, uh, Mrs. Ford, I don't know, she, she came in and said, can I do it? Will you take a picture of me jumping? And he, this caught on for him. He started every time he did a photo shoot with a famous person, he would ask them at the end of the photo shoot, can I take a picture of you jumping? Because he had this belief that, that, that these moments where you're jumping, he said physically, uh, uh, he said this way, when you ask a person to jump, their attention is mostly directed toward the act of jumping and the mask falls so the real person appears. And he was able to, to find the most incredible faces of these protected, guarded, famous people, titans of industry, uh, millionaires, entertainment people, Probably my favorite uh, one. He, so in the 1961, he published a book called The Jump Book, which I think you might be looking at some photos from The Jump Book, where he just took a decade's worth of taking famous people jumping, and he put them into one book. And he coined this idea of jumpology. His, his belief is you can learn a lot about a person just by watching them jump. What they do with their arms, whether they're in or out, how they do it, what they do with their legs, the whole thing. <laughs> Famously, Marilyn Monroe, I think, is actually there. She jumped like a little girl. She threw, her, she threw her, her legs behind her knees. And he said to her after she did that, he said, oh, that's, that's wonderful, but I, I want to see your legs. I couldn't see your legs. Can I take another one? Because there's a lot you can see about a person's character from the way that they jump. And once Marilyn Monroe heard him say that, she said, I don't want to do it anymore. It was too vulnerable. So we have that one picture of her. 
Probably my favorite is Salvador Dali, who said, yes, I would love to have you take a picture of me jumping, but I need a few things for it. He, he, he wanted three cats thrown <laughs> in the picture. It took them, no, this is real. It took them 28 shots to get this picture of three cats in the air. 28 times they had to throw three cats in the air <laughs> to get this shot. Is that up there now? But look at Dolly's face, though. The, 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 the childishness, the boyishness, the joy on his face. Even after 28 takes, there's something he cannot hide about his mischievous side in that picture. Audrey Hepburn's on there, and just the, the little girl that comes out, instead of all the weight of the world, the little girl that comes out. It's amazing to see their masks come off. In some way, all of the Acts of the Apostles, all that you are about to read, all that in some ways you have done even with your own life and seen in your own life is like jumping. I mean, we actually have a thing, because it is about faith, we call it a leap of faith. The jumping of faith, the, 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 the taking off from earth, the distancing ourselves from earth. And that crazy choice to do that in a world we know will bring us back down. We know full well there is this thing called gravity, and yet we jump anyway. And when we do, when all of our force and all of our body begins to act upon, against gravity, against the inevitable, against our cynicism, against our sin, against our selfishness, push ourselves somehow into the air and somehow into some place where we, don't, we know we don't belong. Something happens to us inside. Our true self is released. This is what mission is. This is what, this is what the experience of mission is. We go into mission in part to find ourselves. We go into mission to let the true person inside us that was meant to always live and take, take risks and have a little bit of adventure and to experience some surprise. That's part of why we do it. That's part of what's promised to us if we'll go. I can't tell you when it's going to happen. I can't tell you exactly how it's going to happen, but I'll tell you this. You'll get power and you'll be my witnesses. You will be witnesses. You look good when you jump. There's a vulnerability to it. There is an unmasking. But I'm telling you, as someone that has watched many of you do it, to jump, to try to launch yourself into the futility of gravity, you look good. Faith looks good on you. It makes you look younger. It makes you smile. And I have to say, I hear that call again this morning for myself and maybe for you to jump again. Will you hear that this morning? To jump for joy. To jump for God. Will you allow the Holy Spirit to surprise you again? Will you let go of your need to know everything or control everything? And in its place of control and knowledge, will you accept His power that He's offering you? that he's offering 
terms of total surrender. Does the Price is Right still exist? Is that a show? Is that still a thing? Price is Right, Bob Barker. Nobody knows? Wikipedia. Somebody else leads it? Bob Barker's probably dead. That's horrible. I'm sorry. That whole thing, you go, you go to the Price is Right. I think Elisa went to the Price is Right. She loves the Price is Right. You go, you sit in the audience, and you hope they call you. They hope they call you. They hope they call you. And then if they call your name, they call your name, JP, come on down. That's what they say, right? That's not real. It's not happening. Come on down. And you, they run down. Have you seen the show? They run down. Because that's what they were hoping. They were hoping their name would be called, and they'd come down. They'd come on down. And then you come down, and you bid on something, and they try to get up there and play a game, and they try to win something. And the, the whole thing is to try to, I don't know, win some big, great, what's the thing at the end called? The showcase showdown or something. Is that right? Showcase showdown? I feel like I'm missing some people right now. Google it. Google it. Showcase showdown. Just to win the whole thing. But why would you go? I mean, just commit, consider this for a second. Why would you go to the prices, right? Get your name. Stand in line. Stand in the room. So that when they call your name, come on down. You go, I'm not going down. I'm, I'm in the middle of Fortnite, a Fortnite game right now. I don't want to lose the game. Or... Well, I just like to watch. I just like to watch. I don't want to go down. It's like these, these 11 uh, people are watching this whole thing happen, this whole thing unfold, and this promise is being made. It's like their names are being called. Their names are being called. And we make excuses. I, I got something else to do, or, or uh, you know, I... I just, I'm not, I'm, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to take the risk or, or, or I'm afraid of what might happen or whatever. No, listen, your name was called. That's why you're here. Get down there. Come on down. Paul would say it this way, creation groans. Creation groans. Waiting. Creation itself is groaning, waiting. You know what for? He said, for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. Not for the second coming. Creation groans for you to get out of your seat and to come down. And it's still waiting. Evil is still running rampant in our world. Unbelief. Death. Hatred. Sin. Come down. Your name is being called again. This morning, would you bow your heads? Lord, right now, I'm asking for conviction for every heart. That you would show them right now in this moment, before they come down to this table, I'm asking that you would show them what that jump looks like for them today, this week, this year. What does jumping look like? What does the revelation of the sons and daughters of God look like for them? 
You know, on that night he was betrayed. Jesus, after giving thanks, took bread and broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And so eat it to remember me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sin. Drink it to remember me. And when you do somehow mysteriously come and take this bread and this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And I'm asking you to calm down. Be revealed. Take that jump again. So when you're ready, guys, this is the body and blood of Jesus. Give it for you.